Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Latin American History Podcast, episode 37, The Conquest of Mexico, part 1. So, I'm back. First of all, apologies for disappearing for so long. Quite a lot has changed in my personal life since I put out the last episode. Unexpectedly, I ended up changing jobs, and that meant moving to a new town. I'm still working in the same field as an anthropologist, working in indigenous land rights here in Australia. I'm with a new organisation, however, and I'm in a new town. This all happened very fast, and I ended up having to sort out trying to get this job, moving out of my old place, and sorting out moving to my new home, all in a matter of a few weeks. Needless to say, that took up quite a lot of my time. I also went on a holiday. I spent a month in India and Sri Lanka. Now obviously I knew this was going to happen, but I'd planned to pre-record some episodes. Needless to say, that didn't happen. I'm all settled in now, though. Well, now we're getting back to our usual schedule. You may also notice a dip in sound quality for this episode. My microphone is currently sitting in a box somewhere 400 kilometres away waiting to be brought up along with the rest of my stuff. Hopefully I should have it by the time I record the next episode. To make up for all this, I've got an extra long episode for you all today. It's also the beginning of our series on the conquest of Mexico. This is obviously one of the major, famous events in the history of Latin America, so hopefully you enjoy it. Anyway, let's get on with the episode. At this time... When everyone was enjoying the celebration, when everyone was already dancing, when everyone was already singing, 
when song was linked to song and the songs roared like waves. In that precise moment, the Spaniards determined to kill people. They came into the patio, armed for battle. They came to close the exits, the steps, the entrances, the gate of the eagle in the smallest palace, the gate of the cane stalk and the gate of the snake of mirrors. And when they had closed them, no one could get out anywhere. Once they had done this, they entered the sacred patio to kill people. They came on foot, carrying swords and wooden and metal shields. Immediately they surrounded those who danced, then rushed to the place where the drums were played. They attacked the man who was drumming and cut off both his arms. Then they cut off his head, with such a force that it flew off, falling far away. At that moment... They then attacked all the people, stabbing them, spearing them, wounding them with their swords. They struck some from behind who fell instantly to the ground with their entrails hanging out of their bodies. They cut off the heads of some and smashed the heads of others into little pieces. They struck others in the shoulders and tore their arms from their bodies. They struck some in the thighs and some in the calves. They smashed others in the abdomen and their entrails fell to the earth. There were some who ran in vain, but their bowels spilled out as they ran. They seemed to get their feet entangled with their own entrails. Eager to flee, they found nowhere to go. Some tried to escape, but the Spaniards murdered them at the gates while they laughed. Others climbed the walls, but they could not save themselves. Others entered the communal house, where they were safe for a while. Others lay down among the victims and pretended to be dead, but if they stood up, they would see them and kill them. The blood of the warriors ran like water as they ran, forming pools which widened as the smell of blood and entrails fouled the air, and the Spaniards walked everywhere, searching the communal house for those who were hiding. They ran everywhere. They searched every place. There are always several ways to tell any story. Which one you choose depends on your biases. It depends on the assumptions you make, even the subconscious ones, about how the world works and how to interpret sources. It also, of course, depends on the biases of those sources. The quote I've just read comes from the Florentine Codex. It was written by Aztec scholars under the supervision of a Spanish churchman, soon after their civilization was conquered by the Spanish. I wanted to open with it, because apart from it being attention-grabbing with all its gory detail, it is a first-hand account of one episode of the conquest. In truth, we can't say for sure that the authors were present, although they probably were, but it's certainly a first-hand account on a civilizational level. When it was written, the authors and all their countrymen were getting used to their new situation. The authors were probably a witness to the conquest, if not this specific event, and their ways of thinking would have been a product of the political and societal situation of the day. This quote also encapsulates one way of telling the story of the conquest. There are many who see it as a tragedy, 
and the Aztec as noble victims of Spanish greed and aggression. I could find a heap of quotes like these from the codices, and a few more from the work of Bartolomeo de las Casas. These would allow me to present the story in this way. Reality is always more complex, however. There is no denying that it would have been a terrible event to live through, and that it resulted in countless atrocities and deaths. It was inspired by greed, and led by people who did not care for anything more than their own personal wealth and advancement. That said, if I was minded to, I could just as easily find a heap of quotes which emphasise the savage practices of the Aztecs, the human sacrifices, etc. And if you listen to the previous episodes, you'll know that these things existed. I could find quotes which emphasise the way in which the Spanish brought new technology and political systems, just as the apologists for the British Empire point to the trains when talking about India. These are, of course, the two most binary positions, but there is a whole spectrum of others which I could take up. The important thing, whether you are telling the story of events hundreds of years ago or recounting today's politics, is to find the grey areas and not to let your biases get in the way. There is a journalist, one of the best in my opinion, called Robert Fisk. He has been the Middle East correspondent for a couple of British newspapers for decades, and unfortunately, because of the region's recent history, this also makes him a war correspondent. He sees one of the fundamental aims of his job as to give those without a voice a voice, to hold the powerful to account and make sure that the world knows when they abuse their power at the expense of the powerless. Perhaps if he had been around during the conquest of Mexico, he would have been sending dispatches back on Spanish massacres and their treatment of the population once the conquest was complete. Now that said, he's under no illusions. He has mastered the art of the grey area, and does not allow himself to be led by simple narratives of oppressors versus oppressed. He summed this up perfectly in a 2006 interview, and I want to quote it here. He said, You've got to have the freedom to write angrily, and to point out the bad guys. If I see a massacre, I don't hesitate to say who's done it and why I think they did it. Simon Kellner, who's my editor now at The Independent, describes our newspaper as a views paper, and he wants his correspondents out on the front line saying what it's like and saying who the bad guys are. Usually it turns out they're all bad. Maybe the reporter is too. I remember once Ed Cody at the Washington Post, who was then on the AP, was taking me around Lebanon for my first battle in the Civil War of 1976. He said, Bob, a lot of people will tell you the Israelis are right, or the Syrians are right, or Palestinians are right, or the Christians are right, or the Muslims are right in Lebanon. Believe me, they're all bastards. Of course, you can take a lot of issues with that. But what he was trying to say was that there are no good guys in war. And he's right, there aren't. Movies give you the idea that war is about victory and defeat, heroism and cowardice. It's not. War is primarily about the total failure of the human spirit. It's about death and the infliction of death, 
And if you don't realise that, you'll die in a war. You really will. Forget Hollywood. Now, of course, that's a pretty misanthropic view. I'm sure that covering some of the worst wars and atrocities of recent history would colour your view of humanity a bit and make you a little more cynical. I do think it's a great quote, though. I don't think that Mr Fisk is saying that everyone in the Middle East, all those groups he mentioned, are all bad people. Of course not. He's just saying the people who drive the conflicts are. Hopefully, it helps illustrate my point. That when you're telling the story of a conflict, it can be very difficult to report on the atrocities and the abuses that happen, often to innocent people, without nailing your colours to one mast, choosing one side. Why am I talking about all this? Why have I spent the first ten minutes or so of this episode talking about the Middle East and grey areas and things like this? Well, for one, I hope it helps to put the coming episodes into context. I want to tell the story using the facts we do know, or our best guesses at them, and leave it up to you to decide if you want to add any moral conclusions of your own. But more importantly, it's because these interpretations of the past, of events which happened 500 years ago, they still matter to people and influence how they form their identities. It influences how nations as a whole form their sense of self, and the national stories they use to bind themselves together. There are plenty of people who are certainly drawing conclusions from the story of the conquest of Mexico today. I'm a member of a couple of Mexican history groups on Facebook, and the debate about whether the conquest was the worst thing that ever happened, or a necessary event which helped make the country what it is today, is one that often comes up. The conquest has real-life consequences for Mexicans today, beyond the language and some Mediterranean architecture. Most of the population is mestizo, an ethnic and cultural mix of indigenous and Spanish influences. But as with much of Latin America, if you're indigenous, you are more likely to be poor. Meanwhile, if you turn on the TV and look at the actors, newsreaders or the politicians they cover, they are much more likely to look like they come from Madrid than an average street in Mexico. Hopefully, over the course of this series, and in future episodes, we will explore this more, and put today into context. As I said, I will of course try to do this without bias, although this is never really completely possible. The sources that we have for this period are full of bias, and their authors had motives of their own. Navigating these biases can be difficult, but it also provides useful fault lines which can be examined and used to create a fuller picture of events, as well as the thoughts, beliefs and motivations of the people who wrote them. I will try to include some of these examinations in this series. When people talk of the conquest of Mexico, they are usually talking about the conquest of the Mexica, from which the country takes its name. They are, of course, more commonly known as the Aztec. There is good reason for this. They were the superpowers of Mesoamerica when the Spanish arrived, and their conquest was the main event which made the rest of it possible. 
If you are a regular listener, however, you will know that there were many other civilizations in Mesoamerica, and that despite the large amount of territory under their control, conquering the Aztec did not give the Spanish control over the whole region. Once the Aztec fell, however, much of Mexico and Central America followed very quickly. Within a few years, Spanish Tenochtitlan was linked up with the Spanish colonies in Panama, at least on paper. That said, they will still be conquering and pacifying for decades, and dealing with rebellions for centuries. Although I will be calling this series The Conquest of Mexico, we will be covering everything that happened in the years following Cortes's arrival in Mexico. By the time this series is finished, Spain will be in nominal possession of much of Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, and Panama. The first act in our story takes place before the Spaniards and the Aztec had even crossed paths. Both parties had been on remarkably similar paths of rapid expansion over the preceding few decades. At the time of the conquest, the Aztec ruler was Moctezuma II. Often he's referred to as Montezuma. Trying to piece together his character and life before the meeting of the two peoples is difficult. There are many different reasons for this which we will cover later on. But, puzzlingly, what we do know of his life before the conquest doesn't seem to match up with his behaviour during it. Born around 1466, Moctezuma served as a soldier and a general, first under his father's rule and then his uncle's, before he himself took power in 1502. As a soldier, he led campaigns in today's southern Mexico, the states of Chiapas and Tabasco, and his bravery helped to expand the empire significantly. As a child, as you would expect of a member of the royal family, he was given the best education available. As well as military training, this covered science, religion and art. On the death of his uncle, the preceding emperor, he was not crowned simply because of inheritance. He was chosen by the Aztec council, further evidence that he must have been a promising young man. At the time of his coronation, the empire was bigger than it had ever been. This rapid expansion came with problems, however, and Moctezuma spent the first part of his reign seeing off various rebellions from newly conquered peoples, pacifying and creating the administration needed to rule large areas and population is always difficult, and it gets more difficult the quicker you expand. Despite this, Moctezuma managed to see off the rebels and assert his control. Not only this, he expanded Aztec rule further, conquering the Mixtec and Zapotec states. If you have listened to the episodes on ancient Mexico, you'll know that these were not disorganized tribes. They were impressive civilizations, making Moctezuma's achievements even more significant. When he was not out on campaign, Moctezuma was busy expanding his enormous family. He had several wives and many more concubines, and he is said to have fathered over 100 children. 
In short, everything we know about Moctezuma suggests that he was a powerful, capable and successful ruler, and that the Aztec Empire had recently seemed unstoppable. As we know, the Spaniards had also been expanding. Having recently reconquered the Iberian Peninsula, alongside the Portuguese of course, they had been busy colonising and exploring the Caribbean. They had settled the island of Hispaniola and made it their base, soon moving on to colonise Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Cuba and parts of Panama. Various conquistadors had taken the initiative, risking it all to conquer these new lands and to advance their own personal interests. Some had hit the jackpot, while others had lost their gambles. In this frontier environment full of ambitious men, an atmosphere of intense competition and politicking had developed. Hernán Cortés had arrived in Hispaniola as a young man, with as much ambition as any of his contemporaries. But so far he had failed to make much of a name for himself. In fact, his background and life to date did not make him the most obvious candidate for what he was about to achieve. He was born in central southern Spain to a noble father, but a relatively unknown and poorly connected one. Extremadura, the region he was from, was one of the more recent conquests from the Moors, and it was a difficult place to make a success of yourself. It is dry and relatively infertile. Perhaps this is why it produced so many conquistadors. Francisco Pizarro, the man who would match Cortez's achievements by conquering the Inca, also came from the area, and he was in fact Cortez's second cousin once removed. Another Extremadurian and relation was Nicolás de Avandor, who you may remember as the third governor of Hispaniola. Cortés was apparently a sickly child, showing no signs of being the strong warrior that would bring down an empire and help create another. He also showed a propensity for messing around rather than applying himself. He went to university, aged 14 for example, but dropped out after two years. That said, even at this early stage he was a man of ambition. He was described by a man who knew him well at the time of his studies as restless, haughty, mischievous and given to quarrelling. Although he appears to have lacked the discipline to follow through on the plans laid out for him, he didn't lack the courage to take a gamble on his own plans, and he appears to have wanted to forge his own path. He would have heard stories of the riches to be had on the wild frontiers of the Caribbean, and he decided that this was the route he wanted to take. In 1504, at the age of 18, he boarded a ship to Hispaniola, with the intention of finding fame and fortune. Eighteen may seem like a tender age to be setting forth for the newly discovered and untamed Americas, but this was not his first attempt at getting there. A year earlier, he had been due to sail with Avando, as he went over to take up his governorship, but Cortez's undisciplined streak saw him missing this opportunity. The story goes that the night before his ship left, he was busy in the bedroom of a married woman. The pleasant evening he had arranged for himself was disrupted when he was discovered, and he was forced to jump out of the window 
to make an escape. In the process, he injured himself, although the details of the injury are unclear, and this prevented him from travelling the next morning. The colony was ten years old when he finally did arrive, and new colonists were being given parcels of newly acquired land, as well as Taino slaves to work it, as part of the encomienda system. He therefore may well have had these things given to him regardless, but his family connections to Governor Avando certainly would have helped him. Soon after arrival, he was given a nice little plot of land, and a job helping to govern one of the newly founded towns in the colony. He then spent the next few years establishing himself, and participating in the occasional military action to expand Spanish control of the island. Despite the advantages given to him by his connections, Cortés was just another colonist, and until 1511 he was fairly anonymous, certainly not one of the most influential citizens. This started to change, however, when he made the decision to accompany Velázquez de Cuella on his conquest of Cuba. His reward for doing so was more land and wealth, and prestigious positions in the administration of the new territory. He was twice appointed mayor of the important city of Santiago, for example. Perhaps more important, however, was the relationship that he was able to build with Velázquez. His relative, Ovando, had been recalled by this point, and died in Spain, leaving Cortés without a patron. He managed to impress Velázquez sufficiently to persuade him to informally fill this role. When, after Diego Columbus's interlude, Velázquez was made governor of the whole Indies, this relationship became invaluable. That did not stop Cortés from pushing his luck, however. While the two hit it off, it was far from a smooth relationship. The two were too similar. They were both ambitious and impetuous. This allowed them to develop an understanding, but it also caused problems when their aims conflicted. The most serious disagreement related to Cortez's affair with Velázquez's sister-in-law, a woman named Catalina Suárez. As an aside, names were not fixed in those days as they are today. Catalina is also sometimes referred to as Catalina Juarez, and this is sometimes spelt with a J and sometimes with an X. Even Cortés himself seems to have been referred to in various ways. Today he is almost always known as Hernán, but he seems to have called himself or been called by others at the time either Hernando or Fernando. Spanish naming customs could probably fill an episode by themselves, so for now we will stick with Hernán and Catalina Suárez. We have already seen that Cortés enjoyed the company of women, but that he was less keen on adhering to the customs of the time and behaving in what was considered an honourable way, i.e. sticking to one woman and preferably marrying them. He seemed to be up to his old tricks with Catalina, and this naturally displeased Velázquez. Cortés was arrested multiple times as Velázquez pressured him to do the honourable thing and marry her, or at the very least end his involvement. On one of these occasions he managed to bribe his way out, 
only to be re-arrested soon afterwards. As he continued to refuse to behave, Velasquez resorted to threatening him with the death sentence. This seems to have done the trick, and Cortez grudgingly married Catalina. Relations between the two men returned to normal, and they began hatching a plan. There had, of course, already been a couple of expeditions to explore the coastline of Mexico, and although neither were completely successful, they did lay the groundwork for a proper expedition to try and conquer it. On top of this, the colony being established in Panama, and separate from Velasquez's governorship of the Indies by Balboa and then Davila, was providing a model for mainland conquest. Velasquez, then, wanted to send someone to make a colony in Mexico. If he could do this first, then the land there would surely become part of his governorship, rather than someone else's. In this, his interests aligned with those of Cortes, who was always on the lookout for ways to increase his standing and wealth. Leading a trip into unknown territory would be just such an opportunity. Their interests did not align perfectly, however. Both men knew that whoever brought Mexico under Spanish control would win a huge amount of prestige and quite possibly be awarded the right to govern it themselves. Obviously, this was the outcome Cortes was after, but Velasquez was way too canny to just let that happen. A large conquest on the mainland would make his exploits in Cuba look insignificant. And he was right. How many of you listening have heard of Cortes, and how many had heard of Velázquez? He had already sent off to Spain for permission to launch the conquest, but for now he made an agreement with Cortes and helped his expedition with the guidelines that its purpose was exploration, trade and the acquisition of slaves not to colonise new land. As well as ambition, Cortes had another reason to disregard this order. He himself had bet the house on the trip. He had borrowed heavily to fund it, and he knew that he needed more in the way of returns than could be gained from exploration and trade. He had managed to gather together 11 ships and just over 600 men, including some Taino and African members, both enslaved and free. We don't know if he just got cold feet, or if something happened to inspire his change of heart, but just as the expedition was preparing to leave, Velasquez changed his mind. He decided to replace Cortes as its leader. Cortes, however, got wind of this, and he took the initiative. He quickly set sail before Velázquez could reach him, and he was then declared a rebel. At the time he set off, he had no official permission for his trip, either from Velázquez, the governor of the Indies, or the king in Madrid. It was a typically bold Cortés move. It was early 1519, and he was on his way to Mexico. So that brings the episode almost to an end. But before finishing, there's one more piece of groundwork I'd like to lay. This was well and truly Cortes' expedition. 
but his crew was made up of men of equal ambition and talent, and many of them will influence the direction of events to come. I want to quickly introduce a couple of them now. Perhaps the man who would be most important to Cortes was Pedro de Alvarado, yet another Extremaduran. De Alvarado came from a military family, and he was known for being ambitious, ruthless, and talented. His youth was filled with fanciful tales of bravery, the truth of which are unclear. He had long been a good friend of Cortes, and the two first met soon after they both arrived in the Caribbean. He was also a veteran of the Degrahalva expedition, so he had first-hand experience of the coastline they would be visiting. In the lead-up to the trip, the Alvarado was one of the first to sign up, and he was put in charge of attracting new recruits. Another important crew member was Gonzalo de Sandoval, we know little about his life before Mexico, but we do know that he was originally from, you guessed it, Extremadura, and that he was relatively young. We can infer that he must have been a capable man, both because of his actions during the conquest, and because he was named as one of Cortes's lieutenants, despite his young age. Cristobal de Olid was also an important crew member. An Aragonese man, he was well connected within the colony, and in fact spent much of his life within the household of Velasquez. He was a captain, and the expedition's quartermaster. This put him in charge of the logistics and supplies. There were many other interesting characters aboard, and I will introduce some more of them when they start to play a role in the story. There is, however, one more that I will mention now. Bernal Diaz de Castillo took part in many of the most significant events of the conquest, but he is also important to us because it was he who gave us our most comprehensive first-hand account. He wrote his experiences down in a book which he called The True History of the Conquest of New Spain. We will discuss the strengths and weaknesses of the various sources available at a later date, including those of De Castillo's account. His has a few flaws, but despite this, it is invaluable to us. De Castillo came from a fairly modest background compared to some of his crewmates. His father was in the local government of a small town in central Spain. De Castillo joined Davila's expedition to Panama as a low-ranking colonist. He then joined the exodus from that colony when Davila managed to run it into the ground. De Castillo chose Cuba as his new base, but here he failed to find the wealth he was looking for. Because of this, he joined first De Cordoba and then De Grijalva on their expeditions to the Yucatan. But, as both of those trips were fairly unsuccessful in terms of conquests and plunder, he then signed up to the Cortes one. This time, he would profit from his persistence. Next time, we'll have a look at the time immediately before the conquest from the Aztec perspective. Until then, thanks for listening.
You've been listening to the Latin American History Podcast, written and recorded by Max Sargent. For more information, visit the website www.maxargent.com slash the history of Latin America. And that's spelt M A X S E R J E A N T. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to get in contact at History of Latin America Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching for the Latin American History Podcast. The Twitter handle is at History Latin AM. And if you've liked the show, you can help out by leaving a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you visit the website, you'll see that each episode is accompanied by relevant photos. Most of these are my own, taken during my time in Latin America. All these photos and more are available to purchase as prints at my Etsy shop. You can find this at www.etsy.com slash photo. That's spelt www.etsy.com slash m-a-x-s-e-r-j-e-a-n-t photo. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.